0: So he called the manager in and asked him, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you can no longer be my manager. Then the manager said to himself, what will I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig. I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do so that when I'm removed from management, people will welcome me into their homes. So he summoned each one of his master's debtors how much do you owe my master? He asked the first one. A hundred measures of olive oil, he said. Take your invoice, he told him. Sit down quickly and write 50. Next, he asked another, how much do you owe? A hundred measures of wheat, he said. Take your invoice, he told him, and write 80. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of the light in dealing with their own people. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when, you, when it fails, you may welcome, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you... Have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful in what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank you, Joe.
1: Good morning church. My name is John Fox, and I'm the administrative pastor here at the church, and I have the great privilege of giving you a sermon on the hardest parable out there. Um, if, if you didn't know it, or you weren't listening that closely to the reading, this parable is uh, somewhat confusing. It's kind of difficult. And, uh, and so normally there's like a couple comments and then whoever's preaching prays and we get into it. I want to spend a little bit more time just on the, uh, introduction here before we pray because, um, in our series, we're just at the halfway point. We have 12 sermons going over the parables. If you're new with us, uh, the series is on the parables of Jesus. And so this one is just over the halfway point today and, um, Maybe that was in, intention, I don't know. Um, but, but this one's gonna be rough, okay? So if you make it past this one, you're good, you're good. Um, the parable today focuses on stewardship. And uh, there's a couple of introductory notes I just wanna remind you with in relation to parables and the parables of Jesus in particular. Uh, these will serve us well. And the first is that uh, parables are meant to be relatable. No surprise there, right? That's, uh, that's not shocking for you. Uh, parables or parable parabole is a compound word in Greek, and it means the first part is para, meaning uh, with or um, by or alongside. And uh, uh, balo is the second part, which means to cast or to throw. And so uh, parables just means... Uh, a way of uh, throwing an illustration out there, a way of comparing and contrasting an idea with real life. Um, So this is what you see all the time in the Gospels as Jesus is teaching, especially in an agrarian society. He's talking to people that are farmers. They uh, they deal with all kinds of uh, tangible things. And so he'll say, the kingdom of heaven is like a seed. Well, I know what a seed is because I plant seeds all day long. Uh, or I know what uh, soil is, because I work in that all day. So Jesus is using these everyday examples, and they are to be relatable. Uh, Something that's very different about the relatability here, though, is Jesus, he's always taking parables, and he's using them to talk about the kingdom of God in relation to himself. Unlike Aesop's fables or some kind of moralistic stories, uh, I definitely grew up on those, it's great, Um, Those are good, they can teach you morals, but Jesus is saying something more than morals. He's saying that there is a kingdom coming and there's a king with that kingdom, let me tell you about it. Um, So he provides parables to relate to people. Uh, Secondarily, parables are meant to clarify and confuse. So if you're confused this morning, you are just exactly where you need to be, uh, like the disciples. The confusing part about parables being confusing is, um, is that this is actually an intention. It's an intention. In Matthew 13, Jesus gives the parables of the, uh, the soils, the four different soils, and then just after that, in verse 10, it says, then the disciples came up and asked him, why are you speaking to them in parables? He answered, because the secrets of the kingdom of heaven have been given for you to know, but it has not been given to them. So Jesus' own stated purpose for the parables is to say, I'm giving it so that for some people, it will really clarify things. They will understand what I'm talking about. And other people, it will confuse them because they're not meant to have this knowledge. It's not been given to them on high from the Father. Now, um, the disciples don't leave it there because Jesus gives another parable and after that, they, they take him into a house and they say, oh, okay, we know what you said about understanding, it's been given to us. What, is, what are you talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and so in Matthew 13, 36, they say, they say explain to us the parable and Jesus says, okay, I'll do it. Sit down, let me explain to you. So if you are... Um, in a place this morning where you, you're in this, uh, kind of like for me when I was um, uh, taking music, music lessons in high school, uh, music theory, every music lesson, I just said, oh, now I get it. I didn't get it at all, <laughs> right? I was just trying to keep my teacher happy and uh, have my mom keep paying for these lessons. Um, that's so much how it can be for us, right? We, even the disciples, you hear, oh, yeah, I, no, no, you don't. <laughs> you don't know what this means. And so today, that really highlights for us that we just need to stop before we go any further and pray and ask for the Lord's help to give us eyes to see and ears to hear. So will you do that with me? Father, we acknowledge that uh, as, as uh, Martin Luther, reformer, said the flesh profits nothing. The flesh profits nothing. There's nothing that we can do to add to your words. There's nothing that we can do to um, come this morning and say, we understand everything. We have the authority to know all these things. Father, rather we come as children and say, will you teach us? You give us eyes to see and ears to hear, and would you show us um, that your, your word has all kinds of hidden valuables in it. I'm asking your son's name, amen. All right, so this morning, with this parable, like I said, it's about stewardship. So the main point today is that how we steward God's money exposes what we really believe about Jesus. How we steward God's money exposes what we really believe about Jesus. And as we'll see, Jesus gives this parable to just kinda explain this point. And there are uh, three main points that we're uh, going to be talking through that I think the text breaks down into. Number one is that Jesus gives a warning. In verses one through eight. Then Jesus gives an instruction in verses nine through 12, and then he just gives a a hard reality in verse 13. Hard reality. So those are the three things that we're gonna be going over today. And uh, to start with a warning here, it's really pivotal that as we begin, we just not rush over the first six words in this chapter because it gives us the audience. And as you know, the audience is very important. And so Jesus says, uh, or the, um, Luke says about Jesus, now he, that's Jesus, said to the disciples. Now he said to the disciples. So that tells us Jesus is talking to his disciples. Okay, good, you got that. Now, uh, we might be tempted to think that this just means 12 disciples. It actually means more than that. As Jesus has men and women in his uh, disciple entourage going around listening to him. And and so this is going to be a crowd of people. Furthermore, back in chapter 15, verse 1, we read that all the tax collectors and sinners were approaching to listen to him. So we have a secular crowd, tax collectors and sinners, the uh, dredges of society, the outcasts. And then we have, verse 2, and the Pharisees and scribes were complaining. So then we have the religious crowd, right? Jesus, this is in a, a, a public discourse, as Luke records it, that has multiple parables chained together. And as Jesus is teaching in this uh, mixed crowd of people, you got secular people, you got religious people, you got Jesus' disciples, which are made up of secular and religious people. Jesus then stops after the parable with the lost son and says to his disciples, okay? So if you are a disciple of Jesus this morning, this is for you. Clearly for you. So he gives this parable, and um, the parable is one that is confusing. Okay, I I read a number of commentaries, and uh, I think the the favorite note in all the commentaries was uh, this is a hard parable. Here are the top 16 interpretations (laughs) of this parable. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) I picked it myself, so can't blame Aaron on that one. Um, So what does Jesus say? He says there's a man, there's a rich man. This rich man has a manager. Now, most of the time in the parables, there's always like slaves and servants. This is not that. This is something else. This is a manager. And as far as we can tell, he's something of a CFO and a CEO. Another way to say it is he's the agent of the owner's will. The rich man's will. Not like will and testament, but you know what I mean. He is the one who is executing everything that the rich man wants done. Um, He is managing, and not just like daily stuff, okay? He's not not cleaning up the house. He's not doing all that stuff. He is managing his investments, managing his investments. And he is rich, super rich. So what happens? The, The accusation comes to the owner. Hey, your guy, your agent, he's been really messing up. He's using your wealth and your positions and your uh, possessions to advantage himself not only that he is also wasting it he's just wasting it all so the owner hears about this and he confronts him now we know the uh, in Jesus great example here there's a lot of validity because the dude doesn't say anything right (laughs) after after uh, the owner comes to him he just says hey you're wasting my stuff he's like "Mm, okay I'm done. <laughs> My time's up. Uh, and so then he, uh, he's in a crisis. He's in a crisis. And what does he do? After the manager com- comes to him, and says that he, um, he says, what am I going to do? I'm too weak to dig. I'm too ashamed to beg. So the first thing he does is he evaluates his options. He says, can I, can I go over there? I can't go over there. Can I go to that city? I can't go to that city. Can I go to this firm? No, I can't go to that firm. He realizes because of the position that he's in, which is extraordinarily high, and how much he's messed stuff up, he's never going to get a job again. He is done. Uh, certainly not a job like this where he is managing uh, probably billions of dollars in our equivalency. He's just not gonna have this opportunity ever again in his life. So he says, I don't wanna, I don't wanna dig. I can't do that. I'm not gonna make that. I'll probably die. I, I can't beg. I can't live like that. So he has a eureka moment where he says, I know what I'll do. And he says to himself... I'm gonna call him the debtors. So he calls in the debtors, and we get the impression from this, a uh, couple things, that he is doing this in secret, maybe at dark at night. He's doing it quietly, because he tells people quickly, quickly go, reduce the debt. He's also um, talking to probably more than two people, although that's all that Jesus gives in the example, because uh, it says that he, he called them in one by one. Okay, so he's doing this a lot. He calls them in. And then um, there's two people he talks to, and the first one is going to say um, that he owes 100 measures of olive oil. 100 measures of olive oil. Now, if you are not up to date on your Near Eastern metrics, that is about eight to 900 gallons of olive oil. So a few bathtubs, you know, of olive oil. And uh, the man... <laughs> Gives a certain image in your mind, doesn't it, in the bathtub. Uh, the man, uh, this is very valuable back then. You know, olive oil is used for all kinds of stuff, not just salads. <laughs> <laughs> and he, he calls um, the debtor and says, you know what? How much do you owe 100? Which is also about uh, three years' wages for the average worker. You owe that much? Make it 50 measures. Let's cut it in half. And then he calls in the next guy and says, uh, how much do you owe? He says, 100 measures of wheat, which is actually more valuable than olive oil in the currency apparently, because that would feed 150 people for a year or pay one average worker 7.5 years worth of wages. There's a lot of money. And again, this is just two. So Jesus is giving an example here, right? And so he says, let's reduce the debt. Yeah, I'll... I'll uh, I'll cut it down. How about uh, 80? How does it sound to you? Well, 80 sounds really good, actually. I think I'll go with that. Um, So he does. Now, um, there's a couple of uh, problems here with this. Um, One is, this guy is um, getting fired because he cheats the master, right? Not only does he cheat the master, he cheats him again. Because now he calls in the debtors and he's trying to um, position himself where after forgiving not his debt, his owner's debt, master's debt, then he ingratiates himself with these people so that they are, in the words of a New Yorker, uh, owing him a favor. That's how this works. Oh, you want, want some help with the debt? I'll do you a favor. You do me a favor. And so he has concocted this plan so, such that a uh, lazy manager as he is who's consuming the master's resources, he says, now I can live the rest of my life never working, just consuming other people's stuff. <laughs> Isn't this a wonderful human being? <laughs> Jesus gives a, 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 just a serious example here for this guy. And of course, that's how the story ends. There's no resolution to it. Uh, other than... In verse eight, Jesus says um, uh, this about the master. The master praised the unrighteous manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the children of this age are more shrewd than the children of light in dealing with their own people. So here's the first uh, main uh, kind of twist and turn. There's a couple of them. What is happening here? Is Jesus commending dishonest behavior for greater gain? Is he, is he saying that it is good to cheat people if uh, you do it smartly? Shrewdly. I don't think that is a biblical answer to say yes, that's what Jesus is saying. However, there are multiple interpretations of this parable. Um, on the surface, it can sound like Jesus is commending dishonest action. That's not what Jesus is doing. Rather, Uh, We have a main commenter that we've been reading. It's very helpful. Mr. Snodgrass, great name. Uh, He says this, only two options exist. The steward is praised because he did something either just and effective or unjust but effective. Those are the only two options. This guy uh, is commended by the master who by no means should commend him because He did something that was just and effective or unjust but effective. I don't think the argument for him doing something that is just and effective holds up. Some people interpret this parable, it's very common in the Catholic tradition, for instance, to interpret this parable saying, oh, okay, here's what happened. So Jesus gives this parable about this guy who realizes he's gonna get fired and creates a crisis and in this crisis then he says, you know what? I repent. I am.'" I have a change of heart. Let me go find some people that I can forgive their debt. Let me, let me uh, advantage, not myself, but the master because if I forgive the debt and they'll pay immediately and my master gets some cash flow and, and I will help him and I'll have friends because really that's the most important thing in life is friends. I don't buy that interpretation because of three reasons. Number one, it appears his reasons for reducing the debt are selfish. He doesn't wanna work, but just mooch. Okay, he's a moocher, life moocher. Uh, in verse eight, number two, Jesus renames him from the manager to the unrighteous manager, or my personal favorite, the steward of unrighteousness. <laughs> what a title. Your job is to manage unrighteousness. Oof. Um, number three, the entire point of the parable uses him as an object lesson to say, be at least as shrewd as that guy. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, that guy. You wanna, you wanna think about some messed up individuals and, and role models and all that? That's fine, but just think about that guy. Just I, bare minimum, at least as good as that guy. Because he's a son of this age. He's a child of this world. The children of light need to at least be that shrewd if not more. So Jesus, Jesus gives a warning here. In the warning, I think that we could, we could capture it this way. That as this unrighteous steward is behaving this way, he's not just and effective, he is unjust but effective. And so Jesus' warning is disciples, everything you have is from God who will demand an account of how you use it. So use it wisely. That's what Jesus is saying. Everything you have is from God, and he'll, give you, he'll demand an account. You will be accountable. So use what you have wisely. And this brings up a, a key biblical truth for us, which is that everything we have is a gift. And this is something we really need to consider. And, and at, on the surface, it probably doesn't bother you. Like most people say, oh yeah, I, I love God, everything's a gift. No, this bristles all of us. And it's worth some time to think about. You, you would say, well, you know, the money I have, that okay, that's God's, that's fine. Um, what, about, uh, what about the job? How'd you get that job? Did you... Find that job on your own? Where did you get the the mental faculties to to search for a job like that? How do you daily accomplish the work that you do? What skills did you learn that you could accomplish those things? Where did you get the abilities? Maybe Maybe even just your position of life. Some of us grow up with an excellent education. Others don't. You didn't have anything to do with your birth family. You see, God is the one who is overarching, in control, and crafting all of these things. And so, not just this parable, but the rest of the Bible would say, everything you have is a gift, and it all belongs to God. And so, uh, this morning, we really have to take that in, because in the Old Testament, the rule is 10% goes to God, right? 10% tithe, In the New Testament, that's expanded and and that's the floor now is 10%. But um, can you imagine, we don't have a comparison, but can you imagine a business owner that says, yeah, I'll give you a commission. You give me 10%, I'll give you 90%. You cannot find a deal like that anywhere. But yet that is how the Bible, and certainly this parable, talks about us in relation to God. He gives us 90% in the Old Testament, at least. So uh, this morning, what we need to hear from Jesus is that we will be held to account, there's a warning here, and we need to steward our resources wisely because they're not ours, they're his. Number two, Jesus moves on from a warning and then provides an instruction, and the instruction is... um, going to come in a second, but before that, I want to hit the second kind of major difficulty of this passage. In verse nine, it says, and I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of worldly wealth so that when it fails, they may welcome you into eternal dwellings. Make friends. So there's the real problematic uh, part here where Jesus says, use worldly wealth Or other translations would say wealth of unrighteousness or unrighteous wealth or unrighteous mammon. Use it. So what is Jesus doing? Is he, again, saying that we should use bad business practices or deceitful gain for a greater good? I do not think so. I don't think Jesus is saying that. Money, uh, money or mammon in this passage is really a, a comprehensive kind of mindset. Money is not just like the, the cash that you have, the investments, and that kind of stuff. Mammon includes money, but it's also all of your possessions. It's, uh, it's your house, it's your car, it's everything that you have. So Jesus says, use that unrighteous mammon or wealth or possessions, use it. For gaining friends. And on this point, Snodgrass to the rescue again. He says, by way of summary, then, verse 9 may be paraphrased put yourself in a good position through your use of money, which so easily leads you astray, so that when this age is over, God will receive you into his eternal dwelling. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you can use the money of this world. It is unrighteous, not that the money itself is unrighteous, our intent, when we get it, the money of this world tends to corrupt us. It brings out what is already inside. And so Jesus is saying, use it. Use what you have to make friends. And so that's the, the main instruction here that Jesus gives. In verse 10, he says, whoever is faithful in very little is also faithful in very much. Whoever is unrighteous in very little is also unrighteous in much. So if you have not been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with what is genuine? And if you have not been faithful with what belongs to someone else, who will give you what is your own? Jesus says there is something that's more valuable than worldly wealth or even larger possessions. It's useful, it's like a tool. But there's something that's far greater than that, and that is friends. Friends, eternal friends. And so if we were to capture Jesus' instruction with this parable, I think it would be this. Use money to make eternal friends. It's not complicated. Um, again, Jesus uses this parable to clarify and confuse, like all the parables. So some people walk away from this and say, "Ugh, oh, f- that's why I don't read the Bible, you know? Um, <laughs> or, uh, or like the Pharisees, more seriously, in verse 14, they hear this in the sequence of parables Jesus has been talking about, and they say, uh, uh, Luke says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money were listening to all these things and scoffing at him. Again, a public discourse in which there's a public uh, portrayal of how you feel, what you think, and a whole crowd of people. While Jesus is talking, Psh, yeah, right. That's not. That's not true. They turn their in the Greek means to turn your nose up at somebody. You say absolutely not. Jesus is saying, use money to make eternal friends. Now, um, I had an a. Great experience with this this past week, just trying to talk through the passage and, uh, and uh, work through it. At the dinner table, I asked uh, my four boys, you know, all 10 years or younger, what this parable meant. And I uh, got, got a number of examples, uh, but uh, by far the best one was um, just thinking about it. You know, I just read it, we talked about it. What do you think it means? Best answer. We should use money so that we can have more friends in next world. Yeah. Yeah. That is elementary eschatology for you. Yeah. <laughs> next world. Uh, that's totally what Jesus is saying. Now, a few moments passed by after that came out and I was like, well, that's a pretty good explanation actually. Mm-hmm. I think that's good. It's a lot better than all these commentaries I've been reading. <laughs> um, and, and then uh, we... We have dinner, then we start to have dessert. Now, tiramisu is one of my favorite desserts, one of my favorites, and my wife never makes it. (laughs) But she made it this past week for the first time, and it was stellar, it was good, it was really good. Um, So we're eating tiramisu, and um, she says, hey, I got women's Bible study tomorrow night. What do you think about me sharing it with them? I said, uh, <laughs> simple math here. If they get some, I get less. <laughs> so what? What do I say? So I said no. <laughs> so no, don't do that. Um, and then, of course, you know, uh, just thinking about this passage, I was like. Mammon can be teramasu, can't it? <laughs> it can be. So we shared and I guess they enjoyed it, I don't know. <clears throat> I wasn't around. But that is totally what Jesus is saying. And it is imperceptible to us most of the time that we have money or possessions and we think, yes, yeah, these are great gifts of God. This is for God's glory. I support the local church, I'm involved, I help out people. It is not hard to sacrifice something that you have in excess, ever. Every time you have excess, it's so easy. But when you only have a little bit, that's when your real heart comes out. And that's what Jesus is saying. And that's what we have to use to make friends and not just like make friends like hang out jesus is saying make friends that will last beyond a lifetime make friends that last in eternity so this is gospel related friendship now serving at a food pantry may help you do that giving to your local church even to this church will help you do that As we send out the gospel, we preach the gospel. But I think there's also plenty of space here to say just you personally, maybe. Buy somebody coffee. Try to build a relationship. When we use the money, the possessions that God has given to us to make friends, it's always, always in a gospel direction, we should be thinking about how we use money and how we form friendships for gospel purposes. Jesus is very clear about that. And so, just to consider this point and sum it up, I think it would be really helpful, helpful for all of us whenever we spend money to just think about one question. Ask yourself one question. Why am I spending this money? Jesus says, your motivation should be to bring other people into the kingdom. And I doubt it is that for most of us. And I'm not saying there's not practical needs, all right? I have a house, I work on the house, you gotta spend money on the house, you gotta do things. But what is the motivation? That's what Jesus is getting at. Are you trying to make friends for eternal dwellings? And uh, last, Jesus comes to a reality here. So he gives a warning. He says, you're gonna be held accountable, so be wise. Then he gives an instruction. He says, make friends. That's what I'm trying to say. Eternal friendships. And then he gives this hard reality in verse 13. No one can serve two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Jesus doesn't say a number of things. He doesn't say you shouldn't or uh, you might or any of that. He says you cannot, this is emphatic. You cannot do both. It's a hard reality. But Jesus knows it's worth saying to his disciples, so he does. And in this hard reality, we have to hold in mind that it is totally possible for us to spend money, to use money and possessions and all that um, in a way that is serving God. It's also totally possible to do it in a way that's serving ourselves. Here's the tricky part. This is the last kind of twist and turn of the passage. You can serve God, but not serve money. You can serve money and not serve God, but you can serve money looking like you're serving God. And that's how often I think we fall into this corrupt worldly wealth like Jesus is talking about. You can have maybe even okay motives. You can have religious motives that are just effacing motives, but they can be not genuine motives, maybe just to be secure. It's a great thing, I think, to uh, provide for the needs of your family, provide for the next generation. Some of you are really good at this. Some of you are really good about um, tracking all your money and investments and figuring out how to grow it, how to double it. Beyond that, you're really good at planning for retirement. I think that's a great thing. Maybe even beyond that, you're really good at planning for your kids' inheritance or your grandkids inheritance, admirable, honorable. That's great. We see a lot of that in Proverbs. It's wonderful. But who are you doing it for? That's what Jesus is talking about. Who are you doing it for? Or are you doing it for yourself so that you can just be somebody who is, who is uh, notable? Maybe somebody who's educated. I'm really good at managing money. I have a reputation for managing money. There's all kinds of reasons that our hearts can cook up. But Jesus is saying, you need to focus on why you're spending the money. Is it for God or is it for money? Which is ultimately yourself. And Jesus, so he gives us this reality of how we're always using money, one or the other, one or the other. But more than that, and I think the, the way that Jesus really talks about this is that he also gives us an example. You see, Jesus could have just given us strategies. I really thought about that this past week going through this passage, I'm like, man, it would be so valuable, it'd be so helpful if Jesus just say, here's the strategy for how you need to serve God using money. You need to tithe 10%, you need to uh, put 10% in savings, you need to use another 10% just for like mercy ministries, you know, over and above everything, then you need to take the rest and you need to split it up, you need to have retirement, and you need to have like, (laughs) Jesus says none of that, zero. And so we really need to question how much of the financial education that we've been handed down over the years. I'm not saying it's not good. I'm not saying there's not wisdom in it. But again, Jesus is going to say that why we spend the money is the most important thing. And that will often dictate how we spend the money. Moreover, Jesus is not doing something or telling us to do something that he hasn't already done. Jesus is not just saying, okay, disciples, here's how you need to manage your money and here's why you need to manage it. Jesus is coming to say, I came from heaven. I left everything. The the whole parable Hangs on this temporal versus eternal balance to wealth, right? You use temporal things to really uh, put kingdom gains forward, eternal, eternal rewards. And so Jesus says, I left eternal rewards. I, I left heaven. Nobody had a more comfortable life than Jesus before the incarnation. He left it. Nobody has more wealth, yet Philippians says that he didn't advantage himself by it. In his godhood, Jesus gave up so much to come and serve us. There was a, uh, a famine a couple thousand years ago, as famines go. Uh, it was a big one. It was serious, impacted the whole Mediterranean world and outside of it. And uh, it was during the time of the first church first couple generations of the church. And so the Apostle Paul writes during this time, and he writes to the Corinthians. He says, Corinthians, I know it's hard on you. I know you got a lot going on. There's all kinds of like fighting in the church and other stuff, but you need to remember God calls you to be generous. And more than just being generous, there's another church. That church is suffering even greater than you are. And it Used to be a couple years ago that you were suffering and they sent you money. And now you have more money than they do, so why don't you send them some money? And he says, I could appeal on virtue of my authority as an apostle of Christ to tell you what to do, but I'm not going to do that. In 2 Corinthians 8, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, for your sake he became poor so that by his poverty you might become rich. Jesus is not asking us to do something he hasn't already done. He emptied himself. I will take on the form of a slave. I will be born in the worst part of the Roman Empire. I will be born in a feeding trough. Why? So we may have wealth, Eternal wealth. And when we reflect on Jesus and his life and ministry, we see that he is, in fact, not the unrighteous steward. He is the righteous steward. He is the one, in contrast to this parable, that says, I will manage my father's resources perfectly. I will use everything that he has to give him a thousandfold reward. Now, the reward, again, that Jesus is talking about in this parable is not, is not earthly wealth. It is eternal wealth and relationships, people, friends. One of the craziest things in the, that the New Testament has to tell us about Jesus is that he calls us friend. Friend. Master and slave are accurate. Also, friends, friends. And so Jesus, as he's giving this parable, he's giving us a parable that he has fulfilled. He's walked this path. He's done this. He knows. Eternal friends are more important. And so this morning, I think the the, the clear call for us is that we need to look to Jesus for our model of wise stewardship. And one of the best ways to do that in the Pacific Northwest, especially, is make friends. It can be hard. It can be uncomfortable. And especially here in our culture, you have to take the initiative. That's what Jesus does. Jesus came from heaven to earth. We should be able to go from our door to their door. Make, make friends for kingdom gains. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for sending your Son, the ultimate steward of righteousness, has accomplished all of your will, has executed your plans, your desires. And Lord, we thank you that by his life and death and resurrection, you have brought us into your house such that we have an eternal dwelling that is secure and unfading, and glory yet to be seen. God, would you give us the, uh, the desire and uh, the awareness of these imperceptible changes for us when we are using money and using our possessions for selfish gain rather than for your glory. We ask in your son's name, Amen.